Welcome back. We're going to continue giving you great content from the stage of AUA 2017 in Boston. And today, that content will include the take-home messages in Infertility and Andrology, the take-home messages on Outcomes, and the take-home messages on Sexual Dysfunction. First off, the take-home message on Infertility and Andrology is presented to you by Dr. Mary Simplaski. So I just wanted to thank the AUA and Dr. Manga for having me. And I wanted to congratulate all of the authors of the abstract that I reviewed because there's some really fantastic things happening within the world of male infertility. One of the most hot topics within male infertility is advanced paternal age. And Mike Eisenberg's group did a retrospective review of the National Vital Statistics System and looked at uh, parenting patterns. They found that U.S. paternal age is increasing across all age groups, all levels of education, and all regions, and that births to men aged 40 and 50 have more than doubled in the past 40 years. We know that uh, as men age, there is a decline in semen parameters, but this group actually looked at men who have impaired uh, hypospermatogenesis to start with and the impact of paternal age in, in mice. So they took, a, they, they took a group of men with Sertoli cell only syndrome and they did testicular biopsies on these men and then they looked at the testicular histology and what they found was that with increasing paternal age there was a decrease in seminiferous tubule diameter, a decrease in an increase in interstitial fibrosis and an increase in interstitial inflammation and thus for men with Sertoli cell only and possibly other hypospermatogenic states we should consider early surgical sperm retrieval in these men. Leodol has been one of the first groups to look at the impact of genetics on advanced paternal age. So we know that um, some genes will, with exposure to environmental and lifestyle exposures, that aberrant genes can get passed on to offspring. So he took mice of different ages and different exposures and sacrificed them. And what he found was that at different ages, there was a distinct microRNA profile found with paternal age, and there was an age-dependent decrease in RNA surveillance for transposable elements. So this may have implications for the type of genes that are being passed on to progeny from uh, fathers of advanced paternal age. Shifting gears to medications, Jim Hotelings group put out a pair of abstracts looking at the effects of medications on semen parameters. This was a retrospective review, but for statins, they found that there was a mildly decrease in ejaculate volume of 0.3 milliliters, but then an increase in sperm viability, but no change in the standard semen parameters. For proton pump inhibitors, there was no difference in semen parameters or any of the other variables that they looked at. Mike, Eisenberg group, Mike Eisenberg's group looked at the effect of clomiphene on infertility and demographics. So clomiphene is commonly used by the infertility community for the treatment of hypogonadism and male, infertil male infertility in an off-label fashion. They looked at the um, market claims database and they found that 12,000 men were using clomid. The mean age that, that was being used was 38 years. The median duration of use was 3.6 months, and 60% of these men were off of the clomiphene within six months. 
Now, because this is an off-label use, one thing that we always counsel patients is that we can't, it's difficult for us to um, express all of the possible side effects. And what's reassuring is that in the cohort that Dr. Eisenberg looked at, there was no increase in the risk of DVT, ischemic heart disease, or cancer in men taking clomiphene for a short period. Shifting gears to surgical outcomes, Dr. Grober's group compared the findings of the gross fluid at vasectomy reversal as compared with the microscopic findings. So typically at the time of vasectomy reversal, we aspirate some fluid from the testicular stump and look at it under a bench microscope to determine if sperm are present and therefore if we're performing a vasovaso or a vasoepididymostomy. Some centers may not have a bench microscope, and so some clinicians will actually just use the gross fluid characteristics to determine which operation to perform. However, even in some patients who had favorable fluid characteristics, so thin copious fluid, 10% of those patients did not have sperm in that fluid. Therefore, it reinforces that we do still need to be using the bench microscope for these operations because otherwise 10% of these men are going to end up with an operation that will likely not be patent. There were several abstracts looking at various aspects of varicocele repair. Um, this is Jay Slanlow's group out of the University of Wisconsin, and they looked at the timeline for improvement in semen parameters after varicocele repair and its relationship to reproductive outcomes. What they found was that 50, 57% of men had an improvement in their semen parameters as defined as an increase in total modal count by more than 50% from baseline. 69% of these men had their improvement within three months, but then if you gave these guys an additional three months, another 24% would have an improvement in their semen parameters. And the men who had an improvement in their semen parameters also had an improvement in their clinical pregnancy rates. There was also some novel uh, techniques that were explored for varicocele repair at AUA this year. Um, Dr. Tomita looked at injecting endocyanin green angiography during varicocelectomy to aid in identification of gonadal vessels. Um, Dr. Kayan's group looked at what to do with recurrent or persistent varicoceles. So they took a group of men who had either recurrent or persistent varicoceles, and half of them underwent a repeat varicocele surgery, and half of them were randomized to observation. Men who underwent a repeat varicocele surgery had higher sperm counts, 15 million versus 45 million, higher pregnancy rates, 39% versus 52%, and lower miscarriage rates. The Cornell group continues to advance the microsurgical testicular sperm extraction. Um, so typically when a microchassis is performed, small samples of testicular tissue are given to the andrology lab, and an embryologist searches through that tissue to find small foci of sperm. In this abstract, the authors took testicular tissue from fresh cadaveric specimens for men who were known to be, um, have normal spermatogenic potential, and then they took samples from failed microtesses. They then performed fluorescence-activated cell sorting on these specimens. Within the ejaculate specimen, you can see that there's a spike at the haploid point indicating a, sp a spike for, the, uh, for spermatozoa. And when they did the same assay to the microtesse specimens, there's another small peak at the haploid specimen mark. Therefore, fluorescence-activated cell sorting may at some point uh, provide a way for us to find sperm from a very low sperm environment, short of individually hunting for sperm within this tissue.
shifting to database work. So um, this is data from the University of Toronto. Um, it's, there's a group of fertility centers that are administering um, questionnaires to patients and then collecting these questionnaires to sort of pool our data and uh, be able to make more meaningful conclusions about male infertility. At this point, there's 2,500 completed surveys, and um, the initial findings were presented at this year's AUA. So the most significant findings were that approximately 10% of couples are being treated um, with, by the reproductive gynecologist using some form of assisted reproductive technology with no male factor evaluation. And when you actually look at these men, some of these men have a reversible cause for their infertility, further reinforcing our need for education outside of the urology community. And finally, there was a very well-attended plenary session on the Zika virus by Dr. Turbett. Um, Zika is also a very hot topic now, and as we know, it can cause microcephaly as well as some other adverse reproductive outcomes. Um, assays are now commercially available. Most of them have a relatively good sensitivity but a very high specificity. Um, she looked at the uh, duration that we find Zika virus RNA within bodily fluids, and interestingly, it's found much longer within the semen as compared to serum or, the, or urine, so 81 days in the semen as compared with 39 days in urine and 54 days in uh, serum. Um, Monoclonal antibody studies showed that Zika seems to localize to the mouse epididymis in the testicle as opposed to other tissues, which may explain some of why there's a prolonged shedding. And the current CDC recommendations are for men to wait six months after either exposure or any symptoms before they try and achieve a pregnancy. So again, I want to say thank you to the AUA. Congratulations to all of the presenters and the uh, abstracts. And See you next year in San Francisco. The next take-home message on outcomes is presented to you by Dr. Emily Johnson. Thank you to Dr. Munga, Dr. Thrasher, AUA members and guests. Health Services and Outcomes Research was again prominently featured at this year's AUA. This type of research centers on cost and quality of care, and access to care in addition to patient outcomes. There were eight poster or podium sessions explicitly de dedicated to health services and outcomes research topics, including three focused on cost and outcomes measures, and five focused on practice patterns, quality of life, and shared decision making. Health services and outcomes research topics were also woven into many of the other sessions throughout the AUA, including the plenary. Today's take-home messages will focus largely on key abstracts from the cost and outcomes measures sessions. In attending these sessions, I noted four key themes that I'd like to present to you today. The first is accountable care organizations. The second, EMR technology and telemedicine. The third, cost-effectiveness and value-based care. And finally, physician and hospital ratings. Let's start with our first theme. Resnick and colleagues from Vanderbilt characterized the effect of the Medicare Shared Savings Program ACO enrollment on both the prevalence and appropriateness of prostate cancer screening. This group conducted a differences, and differences analysis to evaluate the effect of ACO enrollment on prevalence of prostate cancer screening, as well as the appropriateness of prostate cancer screening based on both age of the patient, as well as their predicted survival. In the first part of the analysis, Resnick and colleagues noted that rates of PSA screening decreased overall over time. 
However, they also noticed that the rates of PSA screening decreased more dramatically in the ACO-enrolled patients compared with non-ACO-enrolled patients. They concluded that characterizing the potential additive effects of guideline modification and payment reforms will be essential to predict the future landscape of prostate cancer epidemiology. In the second part of their analysis, this group noted that AC enrollment was actually associated with decreased prostate cancer screening among both appropriate and inappropriate candidates for cancer screening. And paradoxically, the reduction in prostate cancer screening was highest in the men with the highest predicted five-year survival, kind of the opposite of what you would expect. They concluded that this raises concerns about the balance between financial incentives and patient-centeredness. In a complementary study, Borza and colleagues from the University of Michigan measured rates of prostate cancer treatment in Medicare patients before and after ACO implementation. They also conducted a differences and differences analysis to evaluate the effect of ACO enrollment on initial prostate cancer treatment as well as potential overtreatment of prostate cancer. Borza concluded that the rate of initial curative prostate cancer treatment decreased in both ACO and non-ACO enrolled patients equally, but that in men who had a high risk of non-cancer mortality over the next 10 years, enrollment in ACO actually had, uh, showed a decrease in potential overtreatment compared with patients who were not enrolled in an ACO. Moving on to our next topic, the electronic medical record and technology and telemedicine. In the award-winning abstract from the poster session, Dr. Shrek and colleagues from Dartmouth developed a natural language processing system to, evaluate, to extract key information from bladder cancer pathology reports. What he found was that this natural language processing system could accurately extract the cancer grade as well as invasion from the pathology reports without requiring a manual chart review. From this study, the group from Dartmouth concluded that natural language processing can provide data from pathology reports from longitudinal analyses and that this may be a highly efficient strategy for use in future studies of bladder cancer and other urologic malignancies. Moving on to telemedicine. Out of the University of Arkansas, Dr. Cannon and colleagues used the Pediatric Health Information System Database, or FIS, to examine the use of telemedicine in both pediatric urology and pediatric medicine more generally. They examined six FIS hospitals and noted that over the eight-year study period, the use of telemedicine was relatively low and that they noted it was centered at really one of these six study hospitals. Additionally, only about 10% of telemedicine visits were for urologic diagnoses. From this study, Dr. Kin and colleagues concluded that telemedicine use may be undercoded at FIS hospitals, but also appears to be underutilized for both pediatric urology patients as well as pediatric patients more globally. Now on to our third topic, cost-effectiveness in value-based care. Dr. Halpern and colleagues from Cornell conducted a decision analysis comparing four strategies for the evaluation of microscopic hematuria. Their main finding was that ultrasound plus cystoscopy is the most cost-effective strategy for evaluation of microscopic hematuria. In fact, they found that the use of CT rather than an ultrasound increased the cost of screening by $65 million per one cancer detected. Chapiti and colleagues from Hopkins conducted a national study of patients undergoing minimally invasive versus open radical cystectomy for bladder cancer. They used the nationwide readmissions database to compare initial 30 and 90 day costs of cystectomy, length of stay, and readmissions for patients undergoing a cystectomy via a minimally invasive versus open approach. 
What they found was that the 30- and 90-day follow-up hospital costs and readmission rates were very similar between the two approaches. However, minimally invasive cystectomy was more expensive during the initial hospitalization, as you can see here. It's about $5,000 more expensive than the open approach. Very interestingly, this was not explained by traditional drivers of increased costs. So length of stay and complications were actually lower for the minimally invasive approach compared with open. The Hopkins group concluded that this has potential implications for creation of bundle payment models for patients undergoing cystectomy. Dr. Kaplan and colleagues from UCLA implemented a value-based care pathway for men with BPH undergoing surgery. After implementation of this pathway, they then provided directed feedback to the urologists who were providing BPH care. Fortunately, they found that BPH outcomes were no worse in patients who had BPH care according to the value-based care pathway compared with matched peers who were receiving usual care. They also found that providing urologists with feedback on their outcome, cost, and practice pattern data had a modest effect in driving physician behavior towards value-based care. So before implementation of the pathway, 0% of their urologists were compliant with the value-based care pathway for BPH, and after implementation, 5% were compliant. On to our final topic, physician and hospital ratings. Dr. Kay and colleagues from Michigan compared hospital rankings by quintile and outcomes after major urologic cancer surgery for prostate, bladder, and kidney cancer. What she found was that adjusted 30-day readmission and mortality rates were lower at higher-ranking hospitals compared with, uh, with the lower-ranking hospitals. So, so, for example, this is a first quintile or lower-ranked hospital, and this would be the fifth quintile hospitals, and you can see that the 30-day readmission rates were higher at the lower-ranking hospitals compared with the higher-ranking hospitals. And again, the same trend held for 30-day mortality. Finally, out of Cedars-Sinai, Dr. Human and colleagues looked at the impact of social media presence on online consumer ratings and surgical volume among California urologists. This group from Cedars-Sinai studied 195 urologists and looked at social media use, so whether the urologist tweeted or used YouTube, um, and the relationship between that and consumer ratings, as well as the urologist's surgical volume for transurethral resection of the prostate, as well as prostatectomy. What they found was that if the urologist posted their surgical videos on YouTube, that this was associated with higher consumer rating scores. And also, if the urologist posted their videos on YouTube or if they tweeted, that uh, those activities were associated with higher prostatectomy volumes, but this same relationship was not seen for TERP, and there were no statistically significant relationships seen for use of Instagram or Facebook. So in summary, uh, we had a vibrant set of sessions uh, for outcomes at the AUA in 2017. There was a wide range of clinical disciplines represented, and key themes included accountable care organizations, the electronic medical record and telemedicine, cost effectiveness, value-based care, and physician and hospital ratings. Given the current landscape of healthcare, we expect that these themes will continue to feature prominently in the years to come. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. And the final take-home message for today is presented to you by Dr. Amy Guise and is on sexual dysfunction. Sexual medicine had a strong presence at the meeting this year with more than 140 abstracts, 84 podiums, five plenary sessions, six courses, and 12 videos covering the topics of Pyrone's disease, implants, erectile dysfunction, female sexual dysfunction, and in all the realms of basic science, 
diagnostics, medical and surgical therapies. So with so many excellent academic discussions, choosing the, the talks to highlight today was a really challenging task. The first abstract that I would like to highlight, though, comes from New York. They did a prospectively treated 85 patients who underwent inflatable penile prosthesis surgery utilizing a preoperative anesthetic block. The block consisted of ropivacaine, lidocaine, bicarbonate, and dexamethasone. 97% of those patients were discharged home on postoperative day zero without opioid prescriptions and instructed to use Tylenol and NSAIDs for postoperative pain control. And during the 30-day follow-up period, 88% of their patients did not require opioid prescriptions for adequate pain control. In the setting of the current opioid crisis in the United States, where over the last 15 years, overdose deaths secondary to opioids have more than tripled. I really want to commend these gentlemen for the work that they did towards a solution and knowing that we can all do better in this realm. Moving on to the topic of hypogonadism, there were some interesting correlations drawn between sleep disorders and the incidence of hypogonadism and erectile dysfunction. Looking at 2,500 men screened for hypogonadism, 766 of them who worked non-standard shifts had worse hypogonadal symptom scores in a validated questionnaire, and their non-standard shift work was an independent predictor of lower serum testosterone. On that same note, while looking at penile dopplers, obstructive sleep apnea correlated with increased venous leak. And in the TRICARE database, when looking at men between the ages of 18 and 65 diagnosed with hypogonadism, on testosterone replacement, when matched for a control, the patients on testosterone did have a modest improvement in cardiovascular-free events, but did have a higher risk of obstructive sleep apnea. On the basic science side, poster 81.4 looked at using human testicular tissue. They were able to differentiate the lighting stem cells in vitro and then xenograft those under the mouse skin uh, to show that they increased serum testosterone in the setting of orchiectomy to preserve the pituitary gonadal axis. This may have potential future human application in patients who are requiring bilateral orchiectomy. We have good news on the topic of erectile dysfunction for cyclists. An internet-based survey recruiting more than 3,900 men, dividing them between athletic non-cyclists, avid and non-avid cyclists, saw no deleterious effects in erectile dysfunction. However, there was a trend towards urethral strictures in cyclists, and increased time standing and higher handlebar height had a decreased risk of numbness. The news was almost as good for women cyclists. Using the same survey model, they were able to enroll more than 3,100 females, and there was no difference in the mean storage and voiding subscores or the total IPSS score. However, when adjusted for age, there was a higher uh, ratio of self-reported UTIs. Back to good news for men. Looking at post-prostatectomy um, or stretched penile length, uh, Podium 4910 enrolled 102 men. They measured stretched penile length preoperatively, 10 days postoperatively, and then at various intervals up to 24 months. The initial loss of length was seen at 10 days, but recovered fully by 12 months. These men also received a pelvic MRI at 10 days and 12 months postoperatively, which showed a vertical repositioning of the membranous urethra by 4 millimeters, but that had recovered at the 12-month image. On the prosthetic side, I'd like to 
congratulate Drs. Lee Colombo and McVeary for the work they're doing on a nickel-titanium alloy prosthesis. We're able to create with a 3D printer. It's activated by change in temperature, and while they're still in the prototype phase, their study demonstrates safety and feasibility. 3D printing allows for the device to be customized to the patient, and activation only changes with te the temperature of the surrounding tissue by 4 to 5 degrees. Staying on the topic of implants, the Mayo Group uh, looked at the risk of infection in IPP revisions, showing that at your first revision, you start at a 6.8 risk of infection, but by the time you get to your fifth revision, you have 100% risk of implant infection. Dr. Wilson's group looked at the 43 patients with implant infections in their series of 1,000 and saw that 30% of them grew gram positives and 47% of them grew gram negatives, which is in contrast to the historical values of 77 and 20% respectively. The idea of in high infection rate in the immunocompromised population was also challenged, looking at 32 HIV patients who were only two had infections and 26 transplant patients in a cohort from Cleveland Clinic had zero infections. This was an interesting topic, the mini jupette graft. Uh, in gentlemen uh, who have post-prostatectomy erectile dysfunction with concomitant mild stress urinary incontinence or climacteria, who were going, undergoing an inflatable penile prosthesis insertion. They had a mini jupette graft, which was sewn to the medial edges of the corporotomies. The sling tightens as the prosthesis inflates, compressing the urethra, and this promising procedure demonstrated 86% resolution of climacteria and 88% resolution of mild stress urinary incontinence. I'd also like to give some attention to the group from San Antonio who looked at the tough cohort of patients, including 13,000 men from Iraq and Afghanistan who were injured. Specifically looking at the 519 men with GU injuries, they had higher injury severity scores and more likely to have urinary and sexual dysfunction. But the disheartening part was when they transitioned their care to the Veterans Health Administration, only 3% of those patients were receiving treatment for those conditions. Looking, finding 86 men out of that same cohort with severe penile injury, trying to identify potential candidates for penile transplant. But after excluding patients who received massive transfusion, pelvic fracture, colorectal injury, lower extremity amputation, and traumatic brain injury, they only had 17% of them remaining who would be eligible for transplant, and many had already had conventional reconstructions. So while the idea of finding the ideal candidate for transplant uh, of the penis is out there, the reality of it is quite tough. Moving on to ejaculatory dysfunction, IX01 is a selective oral oxytocin receptor antagonist admitted, intended for the treatment of men with lifelong premature ejaculation. In an eight-week double-blinded placebo-controlled study, they looked at on-demand IX01 400 and 800 milligram doses taken one to six hours before intercourse and showed a 3.6-fold increase in improvement, higher improvement at the 800 milligram dose uh, for intravaginal ejaculatory latency times. And finally, let's move on to Pyrone's disease. Looking at 10 abstracts discussing early outcomes of injectable collagenase, Clostridium histolinicum, we saw no variation in race, no increase in adverse outcomes when used off-label in the acute phase, no improvement when used in adjuvant with a vacuum erection device or penile traction device, and that when surveyed, many urologists were actually using this off-label for ventral curvatures, 
um, in the active phase of pyronies and all patients were doing home modeling. This interesting study sequenced the genomes of a father-son duo who both have Peyronie's disease and Dupuytren's and identified 150 SNVs, uh, showing genetic alterations in the pathways involved in collagen deposition and cell proliferation and inflammation, as well as GI epithelial maintenance. This has never been done before. And there were two elegant presentations about dystrophic calcifications in the Pyronies plaque, which helped us to better understand the origin and the composition. The composition had a high calcium to phosphate ratio, similar to hydroxyapatite found in bone. And micro-CT shows that this calcification sits between the longitudinal and the circular layers of the tunica albiginia. The second study more focused on the porous structure, that it was similar to that of the branched venous structure at the interface between the albiginia and the tunica. And finally, I'd like to say that the AUA had a strong, firm showing um, for sexual medicine uh, this year. It's full of good news and promise, and I would again like to thank Dr. Manga and Dr. Frasher for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Thank you all for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this content from the stage of AUA 2017. All of our podcasts can be found on the AUA University at university.auanet.org. Thank you, everyone. We will continue to give you this great content.